Good morning. We are turning our Bibles now to Psalm 129 as we continue our series in the Psalms, which will conclude the end of summer, somewhere around the Labor Day weekend. And here, this psalm, as you're turning there, it's going to strike you as um, very much coming out of the countryside. It's a, it's a rural context that has that sense of, well, you are there among the people who are plowing, you are there among the people who are planting, and the imagery is such that it speaks volumes to the way in which we go about living life well. Psalm 129, you can almost picture how the Jewish people, as they were making their way up the hillside to Jerusalem, singing these songs of ascent, would have been struck by the various pictures and images of the countryside along the way. And uh, so Psalm 129, eight verses in awe, and here you and I now find these words. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the hilltops, which, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his, his hand, and the binder sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord, which is in keeping, in fact, with, if you ever study the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, as Boaz made his way out into the fields of Bethlehem, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And the answered, the Lord bless you. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, as we're exploring this morning the theme of affliction found in these verses and why is it that people go through uh, hard times and we explore furthermore the images of the countryside that you provide in these verses, we're asking is that the wisdom from above found in you is, is being provided to those of us who need wisdom in the here and now. Father, it seems like we are, we are climbing uphill like these pilgrims heading to Jerusalem where in our journey of life what we need is to be able to gain added perspective and pause and think about who you are and what you've done. And ultimately, the issues of affliction found in these verses are tied directly to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died 
who died for our sins. So, Father, what we want to do now is to explore these verses you've given us, another song of the ascents, and asking that in a very powerful way that there are those in the prior service, this service, those watching online and at this moment or in the hours or days to come, those that are seeking added perspective, they're going to find it as they turn to you through your word. So, Father, now, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, and him only, and pray these things now, again now, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been referencing periodically Rabbi Eckstein and his outstanding book, on The Journey Home, and he recounts another story he uh, wants to share with you and me about a conversation with the evangelical uh, Jamie Buckingham. As he now tells us, the city of Jerusalem was bustling with shoppers on Friday. Everyone was getting ready for the Sabbath. Hmm. Say, let's go to the Israel Museum and see the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jamie said. It's fascinating to me. Jamie, sorry, we can't. All public institutions are closed on Friday and Saturday here in Israel. Out of respect for Muslims and, of course, the Jewish Sabbath, Jamie, he tells us, looked a bit, a bit disappointed. I have a, a better idea, I said. Let's go to the shuk. You haven't been to Israel until you have gone to the shuk. And before he could ask, I explained. And Jamie, a shuk is a marketplace where they sell vegetables and fruit, challah, which is the Sabbath bread and other such items. It's like, a, it's like a flea market filled with food and hundreds if not thousands of people shopping in the narrow aisles. Well, we walked to the Mahana Yehuda, the main shuch in Jerusalem, been there, casually strolled through the aisles when suddenly, suddenly, we heard someone shout, Shel mehatich, which means, whose bag is this? And a near panic erupted in the crowd of shoppers before it was determined that the suspicious object only belonged to a little boy, by that time in tears, who had put down his lunch bag and walked a few steps away to look at a candy display. For you see, just in days previous, a similar bag had exploded in the streets, taking the lives of others. The rabbi tells us, wherever one goes in Israel, one will see this sign, be alert for suspicious objects. One will also notice something called the boar, bitacham, a security hole, a small steel-reinforced pit where suspicious objects can be placed. 
For you see, Israelis are thoroughly habituated to be on the alert for terrorist attacks. Which ties in so naturally, doesn't it, to the eight verses that we're, that we're exploring together here in this particular psalm. Because in many ways, what we find now the psalmist doing is that he is recounting for us in poetic form uh, the severe oppression that God's people have experienced through the generations and through the centuries. What I want to do here in these eight verses is to draw out what I might call here two areas of focus that help us to get a better sense of how to handle, how to address, how to interpret those times of affliction that come our way as we climb uphill on this journey of life. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 4, and I'm going to phrase it like this, that when you and I, when we are seeking answers for times, for times of affliction, review the past. Review the past. Focusing upon the Lord's righteousness. Every time you're prone to say, this isn't right on your journey of life, counter that with the statement, the Lord is righteous. You pick it up now in verse 1. And here in verse 1, what you and I are told right away is that there is something that needs to be stressed through the word greatly that appears again in verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me. Now, when you read that word right away, greatly, what tells you and tells me that this is not something that is to be treated lightly. This is not an experience that is meant to be minimized. Notice that they have. It tells me that there is some kind of outside force having impact upon the Israeli community of then, and maybe you're experiencing some kind of externals that are afflicting your family in the here and the now. But notice it's a past tense. Have they afflicted me? But now notice that he's saying as he takes us through this journey of life experience, it's from my youth. You can almost hear him feel the exhale at this point. And certainly for the Israeli people, uh, the, uh, their entire experience from the earliest stages was one of affliction. They've afflicted me from youth. You can just picture them in Egypt as they were enduring the hardships, the Red Sea, onward into the wilderness, onward furthermore into the land of Canaan where they would encounter the Philistines and the Midianites and so on. And furthermore, you make your way to the point in which the Assyrians and later the Babylonians would take them into captivity. Greatly have they afflicted me from youth. I examine that word afflict, and I tie it to the word conflict and connect that to the word inflict. The word afflict carries the idea to strike to the ground. It's as if now this, this writer is saying, 
as I recount my experiences of following the Lord, there are times where I hit the ground. It was an agonizing experience. But you tie the word afflict to the word conflict because it's obvious to you, obvious to me, that this this matter of being afflicted is because the Israelite community was conflicted internally but also externally. They were conflict-stricken together. And then the word inflict, to strike upon, it happened in Egypt. It happened in the land of Palestine. It happened when they were taken into captivity and the Babylonians would take them away. Well, now, what he wants to do at this point, because they're still in verse 1, is to make this appeal to all the people that are, that are singing this to the Lord because this was a song of ascent that even Jesus would have sung as they made their way, he and his family, Joseph and Mary and others, through the hillsides up towards Jerusalem for, say, Passover celebrations and so on. What was Jesus thinking? He would reach a time of affliction as well. Let Israel now say, but then repeats himself. Repetition is God's means of getting our attention. Never underestimate when you see patterns of life developing. If there's a pattern developing in life, verbally, visually, whatever, this could very well be God's means of getting your attention. Ask yourself, what does the pattern represent? What stands behind it? Why the repeats in my life experience? Greatly have they afflicted me, then adds, from my youth. But now what we find here in verse 2 is something different from the way he ends verse 1. Where in verse 1 it ended, let Israel now say, in verse 2 it ends somewhat victoriously, yet they have not prevailed against me. This man is standing strong. And when you are positioned in grace, you're meant to stand strong even when you've experienced on your life journey the word afflict, the matter of the conflict, and even the tensions associated with the word inflict. And keep asking yourself, how do I position myself before the Lord on this journey of life? Once again, Rabbi Eckstein, he's looking at Jamie at this point. And as they are walking, Jamie is constantly looking over his shoulder What are you looking for, I asked. Just checking for terrorists, he said, trying to sound casual. But then he looked at me and asked, aren't you concerned, Rabbi? No, Jamie, I stopped him abruptly. I told you, you cannot live here in constant fear. Besides, this land belongs 
to the Lord. We're not going to allow ourselves to be afraid in our own home. Don't worry about it. You'll get used to it soon enough. Hmm. Lessons to be learned on this journey of life. Well, out of all this, then, you, you make your way to verse 3. And now, here in verse 3, what you and I are offered is an image that, uh, that stands out to us in a very distinctive way. Because it's the image that comes out of the rural settings, where it seems as though the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their, their furrows. So what we want to do now is to ask ourselves just what is it that he is teaching us at this point? Well, look at this image that appears on the screen. This is a rural image, and it carries with it the idea of the land which is, is as typical in the Middle East, scorched, hardened um, by, by the heat of the day. And here's a plower. And he's making his way over the course of the land. Now, you and I look at this image, and right away we say to ourselves, there's got to be some lessons learned here in all of this. What can I understand? In verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. It's as if he's saying, all the oppressors through all the years now, just like what we observed as we made our way to Jerusalem and we paused and we looked at, at the countryside and we saw people out plowing, there are times where, very frankly, I felt like that dramatic moment in time when I least expected it, I and family members, we got plowed under. I looked at this image and I began to write down some principles. Life's a journey. You're not meant to stay behind closed doors. And once you step outside the door, the potential for affliction awaits. Yet it is only through the journey of living that you grow stronger before the Lord. Don't hide behind closed doors live. Live for the Lord. Another thought. The seeds of strength are planted in time only after the ground is broken. Another thought. Tomorrow's harvest of strength comes out of today's broken soil. Or to put it another way, it's time, it's time to turn your brokenness into wholeness. And that comes by grace.
And you say, but Gary, how do I go about doing that? Gil Beers had to think that through. Gil Beers was the editor of Christianity Today. His son, who attended Wheaton College with me, Doug Beers, is chronicled in the book, Turn Your Hurts into Healing. Someone after a prior service told me that she's a, a niece of Gil Beers. When I told this story, six weeks before Doug had his fatal accident, he was involved in another. We knew why this one happened. He needed new tires. He was driving on a rain-slick road, and when he put on the brakes, he slid into the intersection. His car was a total loss, but his only injury was a substantial bruise on his head, and we credited God with saving his life. But the bruise produced seizures, one at home, one while he was driving the night he died, if we credited God with saving him in the first accident, should we be blaming God for not saving him in the second? And why did God spare him one time, but not the next time? And would you feel helpless to answer these whys? But no, Dr. Beers writes, I have come to believe that while the why question may be the unanswerable and therefore unproductive question in many of our experiences this side of heaven, for must we know everything? Must we always pry into God's secrets like an unruly child peeking through a keyhole? Are there not times when it is enough for us to know that God is God? Can we, cannot we be content to let God be God in matters beyond human understanding? And so Dr. Beers writes, I believe that the why question is much less important than the who question. I believe it is more, much more important to know who will help me out of my hurt than to know who got me into my hurt. This man is not speaking from a vacuum. This man lost a son who happened to be a close friend of mine. Now, where do you go from here? You cannot make pain your reference point. If you don't make pain your reference point, then the question is to be posed, then what should be my reference point? Your answer and my answer is found in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, notice he doesn't, in verse 4, say, what I've gone through isn't right. Though he could say that and justify that, 
But notice he takes it to a higher level. Instead of saying, what I went through is not right, what he does say is that the Lord is righteous. Paul understood this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. But then in this extraordinary treatise, the book of Romans, he makes his way up to chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look verse 4. The Lord is righteous. What this tells us, then, is that righteousness, righteousness is derived in the Lord, and when we put our faith and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Lord, in turn, declares us righteous, not on the basis of our works, no, but on the basis of Christ's finished work. Now, it might have been possible for Jesus to say, what I'm going through isn't right. And maybe this morning what you're saying is that these experiences that have been so overwhelming just aren't right but I'm asking you to reestablish your focal point. It's not about life's experiences. It's about the Lord who is righteous. And once we have regained our, our perspective, then we're able to move from the past and all the past produced in terms of the pain of life into the future and all that awaits us in this life. Because as you and I are reminded again and again, the soil of life has got to be broken in order for the harvest of life to be produced. Seeds are not planted on hardened ground. They are planted only after the soil has been tilled. And the Lord is righteous in the midst of the tilling of life. As Vance Havner put it, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength, 
It's the broken alabaster that gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. But I would add, Pastor R. Hafner, it was the broken body of Jesus Christ that produces wholeness in the midst of our brokenness. Once we have grasped this, you and I then are able to connect the review of verses 1 through 4 with the preview of verses 5 through 8, because now you're ready to move forward in your journey. Because second of all, as you are working through your area of focus, when seeking answers and for times of affliction, preview the future, focusing upon the Lord's supremacy. So now you and I, we pick it up in verse 5, don't we? And in verse 5, here the psalmist says, May all who hate Zion, and to this very day, what we find is that there's an extraordinary anti-Semitism abroad and near and far. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. He's looking forward, asking them to be turned backward. I, I love the ironies here. But then, you've got verse 6. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. I paused at this point in my exegesis, and I walked out of my office, and uh, Kim Buer, she's extraordinary. I said, Kim, um, need a picture? A picture of um, grass on the housetops in Israel. Look what appears on the screen. To your left, a roof made from wood and mud and a roof roller. And after the winter rains, it's necessary to roll the roof, to reseal it. And so you're looking now at the flat roofs. And as the Middle Eastern sun comes bearing down upon in such intensity the rooftops of the Jewish people, the flat rooftops have seed planted. And now it keeps the household, it's cooler there. And they can bear the heat. Because metaphorically speaking, all throughout Israel's history, they've had to bear the heat. But now you turn to the other side of the screen and you ponder this. The roof later in the year after grass has grown on the roof and died under the summer heat. Look very carefully at the imagery then, tying it to what you are reading here in verse 6. Let them, he's talking about the persecutors. He's talking about all those who are opposed to God's people. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. What does that mean? Well, you see, he's likening these individuals and to those who, lo and behold, are attempting to 
oppose God's people, but they themselves wither in the heat of the day. Oh, they might sprout up initially and look very successful in their opposition to God's plan, such as it looked when Herod, such as it looked when Pontius Pilate, such as it looked when the Sanhedrin was opposed to, opposed to Jesus Christ's claims. But it was short-lived success because three days later, Christ was raised from the grave while the grass of their lives withered. For you see, the thing about Christianity is that it's sustainable. It's eternal. It's tied to the risen one who not only died, but three days later was raised from the grave for your sins, for my sins, you see. And what he's saying, what he's saying here is that the adversity of life in these verses is short-lived because the soil on the rooftop lacks depth. And this is why the grass of adversity dies off. You take a deep breath. Extraordinary wisdom extracted from the images of the rural of the countryside settings being used by this psalmist. So what do we have now? Well now, most likely, the travelers to Jerusalem, they were watching the people out in the, out in the countryside and nodding their heads to verses 7 and 8, with which the reaper does not fill his his hands, and nor the binder of sheaves, his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, as if the opponents of God would say such. Nor will they find these opponents hearing the words, we bless you in the name of the Lord because the blessing is found through putting faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hillsong understands it. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand when I trust you, I don't need to understand. And when we grasp that, we're well underway on this journey of life to being just where God wants us to be for his glory. Let's stand together. A review, preview. Some of us are stuck in the past. Not only reviewing the past, but repeating again and again images of the past. Our tendency is to say, that wasn't right. But in order to move forward, we've got to reach a point of saying, but the Lord is righteous. 
This is where we begin, Father, by your grace to transform our brokenness into wholeness. This is where we begin to take the broken soil of life and transform it into a harvest of ministry to come. We take our review and we bring forth a preview. Good things coming. Good things coming. Because our Lord is good. His promises are certain. And most significantly, three days later, Jesus was raised from the grave. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.